At the 1972 Munich Olympic Games, Frank Shorter won marathon gold, sparking the American distance running boom. He followed with silver at Montreal in 76, the same year Bob Larson's group of ragtag Sandiegans, known as the Hommel Toads, surprised the country by winning the U.S. cross-country championships. American dominance ensued at Boston and New York as Bill Rogers, Alberto Salazar, and Greg Meyer carried the torch into the 80s. But then, nearly as quickly as Shorter lapped the track in Munich, our preeminence waned. At the 2000 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials, only one American male even qualified for the Sydney Games, and none of the competitors hit the Olympic A standard. But by 2004, we had Olympic medalists in both the men's and women's races at Athens. And in recent years, Americans have won major marathons at Boston, Chicago, and New York for the first time in decades. So who is responsible for the resurgence? Perhaps no one more than Coach Bob Larson. In his new book, Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed, New York Times Deputy Sports Editor Matthew Futterman chronicles Coach Larson's journey and the parallel rise, fall, and resurrection of American distance running. Matt joined us earlier this week via Skype for a discussion about his exceptional new book. Matt, welcome in. Thanks for taking some time to join Seconds Flat. Ah, it's great to be with you. Let's start where the book ends. Boston 2018. I was there. I survived that morning and afternoon. And it seems like it was a seminal moment in your running journey. Could you describe that day a little bit for everyone? Well, it was it was really cold and rainy. Uh, I don't think anyone will ever forget it. I think uh, people refer to it as a kind of frozen deluge. It descended on Boston. Boston's a funny place. You just never know what uh, mid-April is going to bring to you. I've mostly had pretty hot, sunny days there, which is kind of a bummer because you train all winter in the cold, and then you get to Boston, and it's it's often the, the hottest day of the year so far. And I don't know how you are in the heat, but I melt in the heat. So uh, I, I wasn't so worried about the cold because I really love running in the cold. But, man, that rain w- was just something else. And you, you're just standing around before the race. And I, I just, honestly I had no idea how long I was going to last. And I remember starting out, and I couldn't feel my toad and i thought i really want to finish this race i've worked hard i've trained hard i'm in really good shape but i don't want to lose my toes over it it's not that important so i figured i'd just go for a little while and if if the numbness got worse i was just gonna have to quit and about three miles in i got the feeling in my left toes i think and then about five miles in, I could feel my right toes. And it, the rain was just pouring, and there was I think about a 15-mile-an-hour headwind. And I remember getting to the 10-mile mark, and 
looking down at my watch and it said 72 on it, which for me is a little fast. I think I was shooting to run like seven and a half. And I just told myself, I was like, you are out of your mind. Like, what are you doing? This is the worst day in the world. And I don't know if I shut off my watch at that point, but I did not look at it again. And I told myself just to chill out, slow down and just go find the finish line. And lo and behold, it ended up being my fastest Boston ever. And I think it was a real lesson in what can happen when you let go of your goals. What can happen when you stop worrying about the numbers and you just sort of get in touch with the people around you, your environment, and you just sort of run in the moment. And it, it ends up being, you know, the, one of the great stories of my running life. I love to think about it, think about it a lot. And it, it pretty much gets me through any bad run I'm having. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It was mile 10 for me also. I checked my watch at 10 and I thought, I'm on a pretty good clip here. I can actually do something today. And as you said, shutting off those numbers for a while and just getting in touch with your body and the feel of the run can be so valuable. And I think that is apparent throughout the story in the book. And that is a, a great lesson from Coach Larson. The runs become almost existential, it feels. So so why Coach Bob Larson? He seems like he's been overshadowed by coaches recently, Salazar, Canova, Daniels, but he's so significant. So So what led you to his story? What led me to his story was getting to know him really just as Meb's coach. Uh, that's how I got to know him. I'm, I've been a sports writer for about 20 years, been a journalist for 25 years. And I, I was covering, one of the things I was covering was distance running. And so I had interviewed him a few times. And then I became familiar with his backstory, which was coaching these hippie runners in the 1960s and 70s, back when, you know, as, I, as I've said, and as I often say, you know, back when, when running 15 or 20 miles on a Saturday morning was just about the most rebellious countercultural thing you could possibly do. It was so fringe. And that's, that's really what I love so much about running is that, that sort of fringy spirit that even though even though it feels so mainstream these days, it's, we're still a pretty small segment of the population that uh, does these long runs. And I, I love it that way. I, I think most of us love it that way. It's sort of like how, it's how we fly, however small a freak flag it is, but it's something we do. It's, it's, it's sort of it's just an extension of ourselves. And uh, Bob's story and coaching those guys and using these guys who you know, look like the Doobie Brothers, essentially, uh, but happened to be really fast and came out of nowhere to win the 1976 National Cross Country Championships back when that was just about the biggest distance running event in the country other than the Boston Marathon. That story really spoke to me. It was It's an underdog story. And the lessons that Bob took from that experience, and we're going to train as a group, we're going to go to elevation, and we're going to go to the edge. We're going to do threshold runs, and we're going to find our limits, because that's what the East Africans are doing. And lo and behold, uh, you get Meb Kifleski and Dina Castor on the podium in the 2004 Summer Games. Yeah, so... 
talk a little about what it means to run to your edge and that f- tempo run philosophy and the balance there. Where is the line between working harder, but also being smart and being patient and knowing that distance running is a long-term endeavor? I think it's all about really listening to your mind and listening to your body and also communing with other runners and getting a little group together that you can go there not just by yourself although sometimes you got to go there by yourself because not all you know we can't always run with somebody i was i I did a threshold run last night uh in central park and sure sure enough the thunderstorms came out and the, the skies opened and uh there was it was it was a pretty cool run. You know, it was one of those one of those runs where you you can either see it as an absolute you know absolute miserable run or or an absolutely heavenly run. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure you've had a few of those. Uh, but you know, what it means is to go to that spot that you're afraid of. Go to the place where if you went one click faster, you would be really uncomfortable. You'd have real trouble breathing you probably wouldn't be able to go very far. But if you went a click or two slower, you might be too comfortable. And what you're doing there is you're trying to teach your body and teach your mind to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, Uh, that it's okay to be there and hang around there for a little while. And, you know, sort of peer, that term edge, the image that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, going to a cliff and sort of peering over to the edge of the cliff. And you, you certainly don't want to fall into it, but you can, you can walk along the edge of it and hang, around, and hang around the edge of it and become comfortable that it's there and you're going to stay up here. You're going to stay on the safe ground. Uh, but you can hang around there for a while because I really believe that when you're pushing yourself there, that these doors keep opening up. I'm sure you've had that sense of, wow, this mile is really tough. And then you keep going at that pace. And then before you know it, a minute or two or two later, you, you have this sense of calm about you, even though you're going at the same speed. It's like you're going down a long hallway and these doors keep opening up. Uh, they're, they're, they're doors of perception, they're doors of potential, doors of capability, and you're, you're teaching your body what it is capable of today and what it will be capable of tomorrow. I think for a runner, often finding what you may call the flow state happens when we're right on that edge, on the precipice. And for Coach Larson, how did he develop that theory of training over time? Because this was nowhere near the norm. The, the long, or excuse me, the, the hard, fast intervals of his early years brought us guys like Zatapek and Ryan, but also a ton of shin splints and stress fractures. So what was his motivating uh, factor in creating this style of running? It was science, honestly. Uh, I mean, this is all, I mean, I'm sort of trying to speak about it very poetically because that, that's where I come to the sport. Uh, but yeah, he was a you know he was a, what we now call a kinesiology major in the in the late fifties and early sixties at San Diego State. He had the great good fortune of being at San Diego State when there was a guy there named Fred Cash 
who was doing the first cardio health studies on adults just about, and he was having adults come to the track at San Diego State and run, and he was taking their pulses. And the the thing that he had this, re- the, the thing that made him so special and stand out, his revolutionary idea, which seemed so crazy at the time that it was actually revolutionary, is that the heart is a muscle like any other one. Because the conventional wisdom back then was that if you were to strain your heart over the age of 35, you were going to risk some kind of catastrophic cardio event. And Fred Cash said that I think that's kind of crazy. I think the heart is a muscle. And I think if we train it uh, and we work it out, it's going to become stronger and more efficient. So he had people doing these runs. And lo and behold, Bob was his assistant. And Bob was looking at what was happening. And Bob was also a runner. And so Bob was training during the summers and he was training away from the track and he was going on these runs along the roads of San Diego. He was just about the only person who was doing it at the time. And he was going for three miles one night and five miles the next night. And he was playing around with distances and playing around with speeds. And he felt that he was getting stronger and then he's in school and he's working with uh, Fred Cash and he's understanding why he's getting stronger. So this idea uh, of, of doing these threshold runs, which are these hard medium length runs, are really a kind of third way between the two prevailing schools of running. One is, you know, those, those intervals you mentioned about the Zatapak school of, you know, doing 60 quarter miles over and over again. Uh, the other is the Lydiard school of, you know, train, don't strain. It's all about volume, go really far. Uh, and Bob has two questions, which is why do the long runs have to be so slow and why do the intervals have to be so short? And by doing that and by tailoring the runs and the workouts and the weekly schedules, to each of his runners and each of his runners' bodies, but really sort of adhering to those core principles of let's go to your edge, let's mix up the workouts, let's change around with what you're doing uh, so your body doesn't get too comfortable with doing the same thing over and over again. It doesn't just push around a track like you're on a hamster wheel uh, time and again. Uh, let's see what kind of strength we build out of, out of that. And that was really a, a massive breakthrough that um, every, everyone has basically adopted. It's how we run now. You know what we call it, run, you know what we call it now? We call it running. Yeah, so we have his toads winning a national championship in cross country in 1976, the running boom and American dominance with guys like Frank Shorter. And then we go to these dark ages, if you will, the abyss of American running in the late 80s and 90s. And you ask in the book, what the hell happened? Where have all the Shorters and Rogers and Salazars or even the next generation of Toads gone? So what happened? I think a couple of things happened. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to point to one exact factor. Uh, I mean, the, the quick answer to your question of where did all those, that next generation of Toads go? Um, one place I do think they went is, is the soccer field. I think, I think, you know, the the downfall in American in distance running sort of coincides with this boom in American soccer participation. And 
it's it's a very similar body type if you think about it. And you know, the the if you look at Galen Rupp, who was essentially discovered on a soccer field, and it, I, I spent a lot of time with the U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, a lot of them were runners growing up as well. Um, so I, I think that is one thing that definitely happened. But the other thing that happened is Salazar. And you mentioned that Salazar, who you know, he was he was the best runner in the world for I don't know what you want to call it, probably about three years. There was no one close to him. And his crowning moment was supposed to be the 84 Olympics. But in the year leading up, up to that, he basically ran into a wall. And uh, nobody trained harder than Salazar. He nearly ran himself to death at the Falmouth Road Race one year. And he was known for just you know, running with 105 temperature and, and just, just never stopping. And this idea when he... This th- this thought sort of pervades American running after he has this calamitous drop off is that well maybe you only have so many steps in your body and we better not waste those in training. So what's the lesson people drew from Salazar? Well, he overtrained, and it's possible he did overtrain. He he, he injured himself in some weird ways, but they were injuries that he probably could have come back from. Uh, he was also, you know, he also suffered from depression, which didn't get diagnosed for a long time. And his life really changed in the nineties, uh, when he got on some psycho, uh, pharmacological drugs and, uh, you know, but the, but the lesson people drew from it was it had to do with how much he was running. So we better dial back and people really started, um, training about 90 miles a week, which just isn't enough. And another thing happened, which is that the money flowed towards where the medals were, which was in the shorter events. And America is just so dominant from 100 meters up to, you know, 400 meters, occasionally 800 meters. But, you know, that was really our sweet spot where we were winning all these medals. And so the distance runners, uh, it became kind of a vicious cycle where, they were left on their own. They didn't really have any guidance. They didn't really have any coaching. They weren't training in groups. And what happened was the East Africans, it was part of their culture. They saw an opportunity and they're living in the Rift Valley and training up there at elevation. And they're doing they're, they're doing something different than everybody else is doing. Their bodies aren't different. They're just training differently. And that's where you see their rise and our downfall. So the money flows to those shorter events, and Coach Larson's focus did as well for a time when he goes to UCLA, and obviously to win national championships in track and field, you have to get guys where the points are. And- yeah, I mean, it's a, real, it's a real unfortunate thing that the way the NCAA system is set up is it, inc- it encourages track and field coaches to give scholarships to quarter milers at the expense of giving scholarships to distance guys. And there's a limited amount of money uh, that can go around. There are a limited number of scholarships. And so what's a coach is a coach's mission is to win national championships. And if he can get a, a quarter mile or a 200 meter runner who can jump up and run the quarter and guys who can run relays and these, you can throw them in long jumps, triple jumps sometimes, and they can score some points there. Uh, that's really where the scholarship money is going to flow. And then you fill out your team with 
the the distance guys who can you know, put together a cross country team and and then run the run the three thousand and the five thousand and whatever other races you need to run. Uh, but there's no real relays at those distances. So yes, the best coaches in the country who are often found uh, at these college programs, including Bob Larson when he was at UCLA, become focused on winning those national championships with those thoroughbreds. But then he sees Meb race. Yeah. Right. And he sees this grit and determination and all those things he loved in his running club a couple decades earlier. Let's fast forward a little bit to the culture they create even after UCLA as they go to Mammoth and replicate some of the things the Africans are doing to create a new boom is their hope in American distance running. Well, what's really cool is you mentioned, you know, then he sees Meb race. The, the race where, he, where Meb caught his eye, Meb actually lost that race. And he was sitting and watching them. And I, I really love that, that lesson. Uh, you know, all our eyes always go to the guy who crosses the tape first. But Bob is sitting there and watching Meb run in an invitational at Drake uh, Stadium at UCLA. It's a high school. He's at UCLA as the UCLA coach and Meb is there running as a high school student. And he sees this kid and he loves the way he runs because he pushes the pace early. And what, what Bob is thinking is that this kid knows himself. He knows how fast he is. He knows where his strengths are. He knows how to compete and he's not afraid to push early and try and dictate the terms of a race. And he loves that spirit. And he thinks this just might be a guy that uh, might provide some value to, to my program. And he goes down and he sees him and he's got this huge family of African immigrants. And he's just so impressed. He actually gives him a full scholarship, which is really a crazy thing that you would never do for the reasons we just discussed to give a long distance guy, full scholarship, but he's so taken with their story of uh, these refugees from the war-torn Eritrean area in in Africa. That Eritrea was long at war with Ethiopia, and that's what they escaped from. So he's so taken with that, and he brings him along, and he's really just got this long-term vision for what he can be, and that turns out to be. Uh, just the perfect vessel for him. And what he does with him eventually is is he cre- recreates that world of the toads, which is he goes around, he cobbles together some money. Uh, this is after Meb has graduated. And he gets a small group together and they move to Elevation. They move to Mammoth uh, because the Africans are training in Elevation. Bob has done the research. That's sort of the new pulse rates uh, and the way that he was on the on the cutting edge in the 60s and checking guys' heart rates and measuring their efficiency, he's really on the cutting edge in the early 2000s with elevation training. And he brings this group, and every morning they meet uh, uh, at the coffee shop out there in, in Mammoth Lakes, and sometimes they go up and they run at 9,000 feet. Sometimes they drop down and they do um, interval work at 4,000 feet. And it really becomes this live high, train low, or sometimes train high brotherhood and sisterhood 
of what we can accomplish when we rely on each other and when we work together. Uh, because there's this belief that the group is more powerful than the individual. And that's just something I love uh, about his counterintuitive thinking. We think of running as this unbelievable individual, unbelievably individual and solitary pursuit. I think that's the sort of cliched vision we have of it. But Bob's idea is that no, it's actually a team sport and we're social animals and we can rely on each other to make our, make our brothers and sisters in this better. Yeah, do you think that is the place where Bob's influence is most felt today in American running? There's no question because in 2001, after Meb's first camp up there, and he comes down and he breaks this 15-year-old American record in the 10,000 on a night that Nike had set up for their runner, Bob Kennedy, to break the record in the 10,000. And, and Kennedy ends up dropping out. And all of a sudden, this guy, Meb Kifleski, comes really kind of out of nowhere. Even though he's a national champion in the 10,000, no one expects him to, to be the one to break the record. He sort of comes out of nowhere and he breaks this record. And the thought that everyone has is what the hell has he been doing and where the hell has he been? And when the answer comes back, well, he's training with this little group in Mammoth. Um, what do you see next that pops up? Uh, Nike Oregon project pops up and Brooks Hansen pops up and all these little running groups sponsored by the shoe companies pop up because people realize that, hey, let's form a group. We can actually do this thing. So in 2000, we get one men's marathon qualifier out of essentially a charity spot for the United States. In 04 in Athens, you have Meb meddling uh, along with Dina Castor, who's also in Mammoth training with Bob and, and Coach V Hill. By 2012, you discuss the trials where we have four guys pressing for three spots and Dathan Ritzenheim gets edged out. Where are we now? What is your opinion of the current state of American distance running? Because we see Galen Rupp at the front of the pack winning Chicago. Our women have been incredibly successful. Obviously, Meb, even just in the past few years, still has had success. But where's the depth of American men's running compared to the vision that Bob Larson had? The depth at the very, very top, uh, I think you're right. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit thin at the moment. Um, but that doesn't mean that you, you're not going to see, I think, some breakout performances in the next, in, in the next few years. I, I think Scott Fobble's um, performance in Boston was really impressive. I mean, he's just got a few marathons under his belt. He is at the very beginning of his career as a marathon runner, and it takes time. The, the Africans have the advantage that it, it's such an endemic part of what they do. They're not focused on necessarily running the mile or the 5K or the 10K in college. I mean, that's really the first focus of every American distance runner. Uh, we go to high school and the thought is, let's get as fast as we can at these cross country races so that we can get you a spot in a good school and a good program and you compete with them for a while. And then when you're 21, 22, you start thinking about what's my professional career gonna look like 
what's my event going to be? And if it is going to be the marathon, then that's going to be a five, seven year process, I would say, if you're going to break through um, into the elite level. It's just going to take some time. You got to you got to get those big boy muscles and those big girl muscles. I think any anyone at the top of that game will tell you that. I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, Shalane and, and Desi, you know, they're, they're, they really started to get at, to that level around their 30th birthdays, you know, around in their late 20s, early 30s. That's, that's where you see it happen. And it happens earlier for the Kenyans and East Africans because they're not thinking about college. They're thinking about becoming professional when they're 18, when they're 19, when they're 20. So they are a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of getting the mileage in their legs. In terms of getting back to your question of the depth, you know, all you can really do in professional sports is create is try and create the deepest talent pool possible and then hope that from that pool a couple of stars emerge. Uh, I think the best correlation you can see from this is and you look at a country like Germany with, with soccer, they don't necessarily try to create the next Lionel Messi because you can't create the next Lionel Messi. Um, it's, it's, that's like you know creating the next Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, it, it doesn't really happen that way. But what they do is they try and capture as many people as possible get them get the you know get soccer balls at their feet at an early age and throughout their development uh identify the the really good ones and you know uh, that and that's a large group of really good ones and cultivate them and train them and then you see who emerges through that competition and through that that uh talent thing uh, that that talent you know, that, that has that magic little thing uh, that, that can get you to become the elite of the elite. So I think what we have now, um, which is at least the system where you have Hoka, Hoka has a group and Flagstaff, uh, you know, Brooks Hansen still has their group and um, Nike's got a bunch of groups up there. I mean, that's really all you can do is create opportunities and if you're providing the opportunities and you're getting some people to participate in them and getting them to do the work and giving them the support, then good things can happen. Yeah, I think the Fobble example is an exceptionally encouraging one and one that follows the model of Coach Larson. He, he's training in Flagstaff at 7,000 feet with a group and still, as you said, young and breaking through 210, leading the Boston Marathon in the hills. Um, there's, I think, a, a lot of hope for what he and maybe a few other guys can do in the next Olympic cycle. Yeah, I mean, he's just about 27, 28 years old, uh, and he's 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 just he's learning how to race still. Um, that's not something that it's it's one thing to go out and you know do your workouts and hit your hit your times. Uh, it's another thing to line up on the starting line next to you know, Decisa and uh, Kipchoge and Cameron War and 
and say, I belong with these guys. I'm going to run with them and I'm going to try and dictate this, dictate the terms of this race to them. I don't think anybody's going to dictate the terms of a race that Kipchoge's in to Kipchoge at any point. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, he can only race a couple of times a year. So there's, there's plenty of other openings. A quick aside on that. When you look at Kipchoge and, and the Patrick Sang group and what they do with their long tempos, where he runs often like a 40-kilometer, 25-ish mile run at slightly slower than marathon pace, where he's a 440 or so average mile in a marathon, and they're running 515, 520. Any parallels you see there with Coach Larson, and do you think that evolved some out of his threshold culture? Well, I think that what you're, what you're also seeing when they're doing those 40-kilometer those uh, runs is they're varying the paces. I mean, I don't think they're they're not going at one speed for for those paces. I mean, I, I, for the whole whole run, I think what you see is you know they'll they'll start out slow and 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 then progressively speed up. What what Larson liked to do is he he liked to tuck threshold runs within long runs. So that, you know, you, you go out five, six miles at a warm-up pace, and then you go hard for seven, eight, ten miles, and then, you know, dial it back a little bit for a couple miles, and then come home hard, uh, because everybody likes to come home hard. So I do see, I, I do, I do see a lot of parallels to, um, to what Larson was doing and what they, and what they were doing then. And, and so did Larson. I mean, that was the thing when he, he, when he started to research how he was going to get back, get his program back. And he went to see what the Kenyans and the, East, and the Ethiopians were doing. He said, well, you know, God darn it. They're, just, they're doing the same things that I did. Like, you know, and, and he knew that they, they, I don't want to say they stole his playbook because, uh, it wasn't anybody. It wasn't anybody's playbook. He was as public with it as as anybody was, but it 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 was it involved the three things that you really have to do when you want to be the best at this. You have to do the long runs. You have to do threshold runs, and you have to do some speed work. So uh, when the race comes down to the last mile, uh, you have something in your legs for that. Or when there's a surge at twelve, you can. You can you can go with the leaders if you want to go with the leaders and not get dropped. So those are really the three things that just about everybody does. And those were the three things that him and his humble toads were doing in the 60s and 70s. And few other people were doing them at the time. Yeah, I love that progression style approach to the long run and the threshold run, allowing you to push to the edge of that cliff without taking yourself over immediately and really getting more value out of that workout. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm the farthest thing from an elite runner. I mean, my best marathon time, which was two years ago was, you know, 315, 58. Uh, but you know, the great thing about running is that elite runners and non-elite runners, they all kind of sort of have the same conversation. There's, and, and it's totally, it, it's totally acceptable for a, elite runners to be accepting of non-elite runners and having that conversation. Abdi Abi Rahman said to me a few months ago uh, when I, when I was sort of joking about this, he said, Hey, we all experience the same pain. We just experience it at different times. And um, there's a lot that you can learn from, from what elites do. And there's nothing 
that will build your confidence and make you feel better uh, about the run you just had than speeding up during a long run, you know, saying, I'm going to do these first five miles at eight minute miles, these next five at 7.45 and this, the full last at 7.30s and, and hitting those splits. You will just, you'll feel, you'll feel better about yourself than, than anything. I left this book wanting to go out on a tempo run. What do you hope your reader takes away from running to the edge? I just hope, I hope a couple of things. One is I hope it makes them love the sport. Um, I hope it makes them understand why they might love the sport. Uh, I say to people, I hope it's a book that, you know, makes you faster, but also makes you love running more. I hope they feel a kinship with, not just the Humboldt Toads, but, you know, with Meb and with Dina, uh, because I, I, I promise you that Meb and Dina feel a kinship with everybody who stands behind them on the starting line. You know, they, they love it. They draw energy from it. So, you know, we're all a part of this, this big human race that is lining up on those runs. And, you know, the, but the larger thing that I, I hope people draw from this is that, you know, the three fundamentals of, Larson's philosophy and the thing that I really liked and drew from it is, you know, this idea of getting yourself comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, training with a group. So relying on other people, you know, being part of a team, understanding that the group can be more powerful than the individual. You can't do it all by yourself. And then the third, the third idea that, you know, who you are and who you are today and how you're born, and how much money you have, and, and all of those other factors, those aren't your destiny. Your destiny is what you make of it, uh, that you can be better tomorrow than you were yesterday if you put in the work, uh, if, you, if you believe in the power of your heart. And I believe those three things are things that can you know, make you not just a better runner, but a better person, a better father, a better, a better mother, a better better kid. Uh, and I really think those can, th those can help you with the rest of your life. So I, I think that that's probably the most important thing that I think people who read the book can, can come away from it thinking. Matt, those are beautiful lessons. It is running to the edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. I have read no finer combination of sports biography and training insight. And I hope everyone will go out and get a copy and enjoy. Thank you so much for your time and joining Seconds Flat. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's just a great pleasure to uh, see this book find its audience and uh, mainly just to have runners say it makes them want to go for a run. Yeah, that's perfect. All right, Matt, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for mile 37 of the Seconds Flat Running podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week. And as always, please email us at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you next time.